We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. It is good to be with you this Sabbath day. I am Chris May, Minister to Women here at Park Street Church. I welcome all of you. And for those of you who are here for the first time, perhaps visiting us here in Boston, a special welcome. It's a great time to be in New England for the summer. We hope you enjoy your stay. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may your light illumine my words. Please, they are nothing without you. And may you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to behold your truth, your power, and the surprising way you have chosen to deal with your enemies. It is in the strong name of Jesus, our King who has called us his friends, that we pray. Amen. There's a line from the musical 1776 that has stayed with me for many years. George Washington is alone on the stage. He's writing a letter to a Congress which has been very inattentive to his pleas. It is deep winter. His ragtag band of greenhorn soldiers are disheartened. Their footwear is in shreds. Their belly is empty, for supplies have been slow in coming. Washington sings his letter because it's a musical. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you should be glad. But the lyrics alone are very poignant. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? The book of Psalms answers that question with a resounding yes. The Psalter is a book for all seasons. If you're celebrating, there's a psalm for you. If you're deep in sorrow, there's a psalm for you. If you're overwhelmed by life, there are many psalms for you. Athanasius, fourth century bishop of Alexandria wrote, the Psalter has a certain grace of its own. The one who hears is deeply moved, as though he himself were speaking, and is affected by the words of the songs as if they were his own songs. Writing in the 1500s, John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And you don't have to be famous to love the Psalms. My husband, Doug, said that when he was a new believer, he would take the book of Psalms and keep reading until he found one that explained, that described just the way he was feeling. And that reassured him. The Psalter is a prayer book for everyone. 
But most importantly, the Psalms were a prayer book for Jesus. Fifth century Bishop Augustine of Hippo believed that it was the very voice of Christ that we hear in the Psalms. So he prayed the Psalter as words to Christ, about Christ, and for Christ. We can say that Jesus wrote the Psalms because all of scripture is inspired by the Lord. And I believe he also prayed them, even the enemy Psalms, which can make us very uncomfortable. We'd rather avoid them, relegate that to the Old Testament, that violent part of the Bible that we don't understand. But if we want to be participants in the entirety of the Bible's one incredible narrative, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we have to include all the Psalms because there isn't just one enemy Psalm. They are scattered throughout the Psalter like ants at a picnic so we cannot avoid them. Psalm 69 is a lament about enemies. It includes lots of imprecation, malediction. Those are fancy words for the cursing of enemies. Let's see what such a lament has to say about the character of a good God who loves us. We're going to encounter paradox here. We're going to have to hold truths that seem contrary and not let one slip away in favor of the other. But be of good cheer, for whenever we find a paradox, there will be a good adventure as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 69, pages 482 and 3 in your pew Bibles. I think you'll find it very helpful if we follow along together. I would like to consider the Psalm from three perspectives. First from David's perspective, then from what could have been Jesus' perspective, and finally what it might be like to pray this psalm from our own perspective. We learn something about the psalm before it even begins. David wrote it, and he's handing it over to the leader, presumably the worship leader, who would most likely have been a Levite. And he wants it set to the tune of lilies. We know that events like this happened, because in 1 Chronicles 16.7, we read, Then on that day, David first appointed the singing of praises to the Lord by Asaph and his kindred. Sadly, we have no record now of what these tunes were. We just know there was singing. This leading information, coupled with verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, brings us to our first paradox. Are you ready to hold it? Ready for adventure? The Psalms are both communal and personal. This Psalm is clearly meant for worship, but it's also a very personal Psalm to David. I and me are the pronouns found throughout this Psalm. Communal, personal. That's the way the Psalms are written. It's a paradox, so we need to hold both those truths and not be perplexed by them, but rest in them, because they are good news for us. It means that we can worship in a group setting with the Psalms, and we can worship in privacy in the Psalms. You'll notice that David is not content to leave his lament to one verse. He wants to elaborate all the way to verse 4. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold, I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. 
I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. These verses introduce us to a distinctive characteristic of Hebrew poetry. Scholars call it parallelism. I learned that parallelism is much more than A equals B. Tremper Longman III writes that it is more like A, furthermore, B. As he writes, the second verse intensifies, specifies, or sharpens the thought of the first verse or phrase. It's as if I said to you, I had a chocolate ice cream cone on our vacation at Cape Cod this summer. You get some information, and you can infer some information from that statement. But when I add, we went to Smitty's, our favorite ice cream stand on the Cape, and I had a double dark chocolate fudge, fudge ripple chocolate ice cream cone. <laughs> then you've learned a lot more. So let's look again at those verses of David's. A command, not a gentle request. Save me, O God. Why? The waters have come up to my neck. Furthermore, I sink in deep mire, and you know why that's bad, God. There is no foothold. Even worse, I have come into deep waters, and the flood is sweeping over me. Some versions say I am sinking in the mud. Now we're really empathizing with David. He is in deep trouble. Drowning wetness is everywhere. And then David gives us a different picture from wetness but one that is just as dire. I am weary with my crying out. Furthermore, my throat is parched. David is in up to his neck, sinking fast in the mud, shouting for help, but not getting any answers from God. He can't drink this mucky water, so his throat is parched. And as he writes, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. With that my, David is reminding God of their covenant relationship. You are my God. So when are you going to show up? That question is not there, but it's still explicit, underwritten in this desperate cry for help. It's as present as a powerful undertow in those floodwaters David is experiencing. And then in verse 4, David moves from poetic imagery, comparing his situation to sinking in quicksand, to describing what the practical problem is. Again, we have parallelism, one phrase telling us something new, giving us more information, a more vivid picture of David and what he is experiencing. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me. And the word for hate here is not just restricted to hateful emotions, it's hateful actions. And the hate is unjustified. It is without cause. Even worse, the enemies are not weaklings. Mighty are those who would destroy me. David is saying, those enemies are overwhelmingly, Lord, are overwhelming me. I may be king, but they're too powerful for me. And then another, furthermore, B statement. How do they want to destroy me? My enemies accuse me falsely. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Most commentators say there's no evidence that this is a question, so perhaps a better translation might be, and is even stronger, what I did not steal, I must now restore. The problem could not be stated more creatively and urgently. 
David is not afraid to tell God exactly how he feels, and he's not underplaying it. Oh, Lord, it's not too bad. It's just as irritating as a little sand in my sandals, maybe. I shouldn't even have mentioned it. No. David is expressing his emotions with extreme intensity. And then we have this interesting verse, right after, what I did not steal, I must now restore. Verse 5 comes. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. David has just claimed innocent, but now he's saying he's not guilty. Can this be another paradox? I think it can be. If we hold these truths rightly, we can see that it's possible to be guilty and innocent at the same time. David is saying, I've been guilty of a lot of things, Lord, and you know it. I am swimming in a sea of sin, but in this case, there is a tiny island of innocence. I am being accused, and I didn't do it. They want me to pay back what I didn't steal. I am angry, Lord. I have righteous indignation. And then David prays a verse which has been one of my own prayers over my years in ministry. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. In what way is this parallelism? How does the B statement enhance the A one? The first part of that verse refers to God as Yahweh, the name God gave to Moses when Moses first encountered him. I am who I am. God is saying, I'm the only one who can define myself because no one is like me. And then David calls God Yahweh of hosts. And you know that hosts here does not mean maitre d's and fancy restaurants. It means armies. David doesn't want those who hope in Yahweh to be put to shame because of him. And he's calling on God to show his might. In the second part of the verse, David refers to God as the God of Israel. He's reminding God again that he made a covenant with the Hebrew people and therefore has a responsibility, as any good suzerain does to his subjects, to protect them. David has given us God the mighty, and now he gives us God the personal. In verses 7 through 12, David continues to let the Lord know why he's innocent. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That reminds us of Jesus cleansing the temple. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I'm just trying to stick up for you, Lord, says David. I don't want your reputation to be tarnished. Nevertheless, he was reproached for his fasting, reproached for wearing sackcloth. He became the subject of gossip to the town leaders who sit in the gate. Even the drunkards made songs about him. Talk about dishonor and shame. But then in verse 13, we have what may be the most beautifully faithful verse in this whole lament. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. David is saying, I desperately need you to answer me, Lord, but even in my desperation, I want to submit to your will. 
Not in my time, Lord, but in yours. David may be desperate, but he does hear what David does so remarkably well. He doesn't doubt that God loves him. He acknowledges God will act, not stingily, not wrathfully, but in the abundance of his steadfast love. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, quite difficult to translate fully into English. Some versions say steadfast love, some loving kindness, some covenantal love, but however we translate it, it is a beautiful concept. Hesed would make a great word study if you're looking for an end of summer little Bible project. When we read the following verses, 14 and 15, we think this psalm is going to be over because they're a perfect bookend to the way the psalm began. David says, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Pretty nice conclusion, right? He's told us, Lord, not my timing, but yours. He's trusting in God's steadfast love, God's hesed. Up to verse 15, we have neat and tidy, symmetrical. But if there's one thing the Psalms tell us, it is that life is not neat and tidy. It's not symmetrical. It is messy. The, book, the bookends often don't match. And in fact, sometimes one of the bookends fall over and the books spill out onto the shelf. Not symmetrical, not comforting, not tidy. Our psalm is not over. And David is definitely not done lamenting. He has more to tell God about, more emotions to share, and he's added a new dimension to his lament. He's telling God what he wants God to do with his enemies and he does not hold back. He wants their table to be poison to them. He wants them to have terrible physical maladies. He wants them to have no friends or descendants. And finally, he wants them to be blotted out of the book of life. Can't get much stronger than that. But I do want to say, to David's credit, that in all these enemy songs, he never says to God, Lord, this is what I'm going to do to my enemies. I hope you bless it. No, he tells God what he wants God to do with his enemies. And that's very different. But we can't deny that we do have cursing here, and it is not polite. You probably don't read this psalm in your family devotions. And you might not use it to lead someone to the gospel. But I want to persuade you that these imprecations, shocking as they may be, need to be there, because our gospel is for every part of our human nature, not just the nice parts. As we move to considering how Jesus might have prayed Psalm 69, I want to give you one truth to hold on to, like a headlamp in this dark forest of imprecations, maledictions. It's from Charles Bullock's commentary on the Psalms. I read it years ago when I was writing a Bible study on David and his songs, and it's stuck with me ever since. Here it is. You can say anything as long as you say it to God. One more time. You can say anything as long as you say it to God. 
David uses strong language in this psalm and in many of his laments against enemies. But you know what? We know that not holding back worked because David let God take care of his, em of his enemies. You know he had several chances to kill King Saul, who was desperately trying to kill him. But he never took advantage of a single opportunity. He told God how he felt in no uncertain terms. Then he laid that burden in God's lap and left it there. And that gave God time to change David's heart so that he would not sin against his enemies. I've often wondered that if David had written some psalms about lust, perhaps he might not have had such trouble with that sin. Perhaps he wouldn't have resisted his illegitimate desire for Bathsheba. But now let's leave David and consider how Jesus might have prayed Psalm 69. For this is a big problem, isn't it? Yes, we can get how David might have felt to pray this psalm. We can get how we might feel praying this psalm. But Jesus? Jesus who died for our sins on the cross? Jesus who tells us to love our enemies? To forgive them, not take revenge on them? First of all, let's remember that Jesus does curse. He curses a fig tree as a symbol of unfaithful Israel, and that fig tree dies. In the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard, when they kill the son, they are themselves cast out of the vineyard and it is given to others. Furthermore, Jesus pronounces judgment on the scribes and chief priests who are shocked because they know he is telling this parable against them. He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These are the same religious leaders to whom, at the end of his seven woes pronounced against them, Jesus declares, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Not exactly gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But here we have another paradox that we must hold firmly in our hands. We know that every word coming out of the mouth of Jesus is spoken in love because God is love. So when Jesus says, you are a brood of vipers, he is warning them, holding up a mirror saying, do you really wanna look like that? Do you really wanna be like that? When he says, if you reject the cornerstone, you will be crushed by it. He is telling them the truth in strong language. When he curses a fig tree, he is giving the Israelites a visual portrait of what it will be like if they do not repent. The fear of the Lord may truly make us scared sometimes, but it truly is the beginning of wisdom. It can draw us back from the precipice of doom and lead us to freedom and life. So we see that Jesus does use cursing language during his time on earth, but does he really pray every word of these enemy psalms? I believe he did, and I believe that it's crucial that he did. The one who was both perfect God and perfect man had to pray those psalms so that he could experience fully our need to pray them. Because of the incarnation, 
the sinless man shows that he's willing to muck around in the mire of our existence, to enter fully into our disorientation, our confusion, our distress. And at the cross, the sinless man completes his entering into our pain. He takes it all into himself, not just our sin, but our frailty and our suffering as well. That's why Jesus can pray alongside David, you know my folly. He knows it because he bore it on the cross. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all the things that the psalmist wants God to do to his enemies, God the Son allows God the Father to do to him. Though Father and Son both know that the pain will be unbearable, Jesus' throat is parched as he hangs on the cross. Is he given cooling water? No. Just as Psalm 69 foretold, he's given vinegar, which only accentuates thirst. And that's only a small part of the pain Jesus experienced on the cross. The worst was his separation from his father as he bore the sin of the world, took it into himself. He bore that wrenching pain of separation so that we would not have to. Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew the pain would be unbearable, but the resurrection proves the pain was not unconquerable and would be transformative. I want to conclude this section about Jesus praying the Psalms with a reminder of that paradox I mentioned earlier. We know that Jesus, not from a sense of duty, but from exuberant joy, willingly received the wrath of God into his own person instead of unleashing it upon us. And we also know there will come a day, we don't know when, but it is certain it will come, when Jesus the Lord will return to set his kingdom right by judging the earth and removing all wickedness. On that day, it will not go well for those who have rejected him, who have worked against his good purposes. The cry of the martyrs for justice recorded in the book of Revelation will be answered. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, himself a martyr for working against the wicked rule of Adolf Hitler, writes, The cross of Jesus is valid for all men. Whoever opposes him, whoever corrupts the word of the cross of Jesus on which God's wrath must be executed, must bear the curse of God sometime or another. The New Testament speaks with great clarity concerning this and does not distinguish itself at all in this respect from the Old Testament, but it also speaks of the joy of believers in that day on which God will execute his final judgment. In this way, the crucified Jesus teaches us how to pray the imprecatory psalms correctly. And what does that look like for us? First of all, 
invite Jesus to pray those psalms of lament, those songs against enemies. Invite him to pray them with you. Invite him for just a moment to let you bear his pain so that you can understand that he understands yours. For Jesus was persecuted for being faithful, not faithless. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. He was misunderstood and abandoned by his friends. He was mocked and insulted in every way by those who should have worshipped him. More deeply than your deepest, deepest, dearest earthly friend, Jesus dearly wants to be your prayer companion. Bonhoeffer writes, Prayer does not mean simply to pour out one's heart. It means rather to find the way to God and to speak with God, whether the heart is full or empty. No one can do that alone. For that, we need Jesus Christ. Second, when you pray, don't try to be holier than God. Don't say, I'm not going to pray those yucky words in the psalm. I'm a nice little Christian. Pray them, just as they're written. Remember how well raw honesty worked for David. And if you can't pray them for yourself, pray them for someone who is suffering. Pray them because Jesus prayed them and still prays them. Pray them for the widow and the orphan. That means for the needy, the oppressed, the marginalized, for those who have enemies too powerful to conquer on their own. And we all have those kinds of enemies. An enemy can be a person, but it can also be disease, natural disasters, corruption, fear, lust, envy, greed, addiction. The list goes on, and we don't want to forget Satan, the fierce enemy of our souls. Third, don't be an enemy yourself. At first, you may scoff at that. We may not think we're powerful enough to be an enemy to anyone, but most of us are. We have employees, colleagues, children, elderly parents, siblings, spouses, friends, people whom we have the power to manipulate and control. We have the power to wound them by our actions, by our words, and by our silence. Fourth, remember Jesus said to love our enemies, just as he did. Praying an enemy psalm can be the first step in that process. But please know that loving our enemies does not mean we must stay in abusive, tormenting relationships. It does mean forgiveness, refraining from gossip, resisting revenge, perhaps even engaging in acts of service for our enemies. If you're not sure what to do with an enemy, seek counsel from the Holy Spirit and from those you trust in the church. Fifth, sing the Psalms sometimes. Even if you don't think you have a good voice, sing them. Jesus thinks you have a good voice, especially when you're singing to him. The Psalms were written to be sung. I learned that the word Psalter originally referred to a musical instrument and only secondarily as prayers offered to God in the form of songs. N.T. Wright, who has made it a practice from his youth to read five psalms daily, not all at once, but throughout the day, 
sometimes sings them metrically. I discovered from him that there is a book that sets every psalm to at least one familiar hymn tune. I bought the book. I've been trying to play the tunes on my marimba. I'm not very good. And Doug and I sometimes attempt to sing along. It's fun, even though we don't sing too great. Finally, be grateful. I've left the last verses of Psalm 69 to be our closing prayer because they are filled with gratitude and hope. It doesn't matter if these verses are David speaking prophetically or in addition during the time of the Babylonian exile. They are still the inspired words of scripture and they are a beautiful ending to this psalm. I will praise the name of God with a song and then a be furthermore statement, not just any song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. Just what David wanted at the beginning of the lament. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Why? Is this a vain hope? No. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, we do want to call upon your name. We are grateful for your psalms in your book, which allow us to be full-bodied, emotional people, which allow us to experience you praying with us. There is somebody who's there. There is somebody who cares. There is somebody who sees what we see. Thank you that we do not have to pretend before you. Keep us praying these psalms with open hearts, even the ones that contain unpleasant truth. Keep us praying them faithfully until you return to make all things new, and we will rejoice together in your world set right at last. Amen.